Hi, I'm Sage Latora, and I'm here with my friend Adam. And uh, each week we take a question from uh, our own creation or a friend and answer it with which games best fit it. Uh, this week, our friend Joe asked us about a game for a party. He's having some people over. Uh, not necessarily role-playing game fans, but they do play board games. And uh, he wants to have a game on hand to introduce to them. And in general, it sounds like this should be a game that maybe he can use with other groups of friends as well. So, Adam, uh, what did you pick? So, uh, I picked a couple because I cheat. Uh, but the we main one... Yeah, exactly right. You gotta cheat. The main one is Fiasco. Uh, 2009, Jason Morningstar. Fiasco... Fiasco has lots of things going for it. Um, first... It's, so the short of it is it's a GMless role-playing game, uh, which means you can you can have an example of play in yourself, which is really nice. It takes very very little prep, and the prep explains the game. So everybody's doing it together, and they're hanging out and writing down stuff on notebook cards, and stuff is crazy. Given how many times I've introduced people to Fiasco, I'm a bit embarrassed that that isn't even one that I considered. Awesome. I was, <laughs> I was really worried that I, that I would be... Uh, I was really worried that my shit. choices would be stealing yours. Well, so. they might be on the second one. <laughs> uh, so, and then uh, this is also Will Wheaton has done it on tabletop, mm -hmm. which means, uh, and I have sent that link around to lots of people, so even if they're not massive gamers, they may have caught the episode on tabletop. Uh, it doesn't take very long to actually play. It flies. And there are a million different genre playbooks mm -hmm. that are, oh, I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends that really like Coen Brothers movies. Well, all of them all are Coen of the Brothers fiasco, movies. All of the fiasco playbooks. Or I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends uh, that really like uh, fantasy stuff. There's a playbook for that. I There's really the like Guy Ritchie style, uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Right. Everybody that's hanging out in the 60s and we can play a playbook like that. And so you can basically tailor the setup to how people are hanging out. So yeah, the the playbooks and the setup and the ease of play and the just kind of hanging out stuff means, you know, hey, we have about an hour to kill. We could play a board game that it will take me about a half an hour to explain, or we can play a game that will take me practically no time to explain. Everybody will laugh about it, and we'll finish, and you'll want to play again. And I think one of the most amazing things about Fiasco is that it plays out in a duration close to one of the movies that it's emulating. Not quite. You're right. probably going to go a little long unless you really push through. But it's one of the few games that really sits well in that time frame, which was one of the main things that I was considering. If you have a bunch of friends over, they're not necessarily going to be ready for a whole evening of, you know, playing a game, uh, unless you prepare them for that. Like, there's also kind of this side discussion of, well, maybe you warm your friends up more than, oh, after dinner, would you like to play a role-playing game? But Fiasco is really good for the, after dinner, would you like to play a role-playing game? It's, it's like a movie. Like, especially if people were already discussing, should we watch... Uh, Fargo? Well, what if we played Fargo? Yeah, I don't know. Like, like that transition is weird. And and well, the yeah. thing about the thing about my uh, my picks for games is that they're all games that I have played in this manner. Mm. As in, we're having a party. Adam, you know games. Let's play a game. Okay, here's some note cards. Go right. So I. Uh... My funny story with Fiasco is that the first time I encountered it was through one of these playbooks that you're talking about, because the entire game, you always are using a playbook. There's a few included in the book. There's a whole bunch more free online from all kinds of wonderful people. Uh, but somehow I found one of these playbooks before finding the rest of the game, and the playbooks are basically random tables. They're actually kind of menus that you're choosing off of with a random element, but they basically look like random tables. And I thought this was an entire game uh, called Lucky Strike. That was the first one that I found, which is a World War II kind of setup. And I, for the longest time, was really confused as to how you do anything with this game. Uh, the funny part is you don't actually need to know much more. I only need to do like a few sentences, sentences more of explanation, and the entire thing clicked. And that's the thing, right, is that, is that teaching this game is, okay, crazy stuff is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Here are the th crazy things that we're going to seed the game with. Here's some note cards. I'll explain as we go. And especially for people that are not strong gamers, that are not worried about, okay, how do I win this game and, you know, whatever. People that just want to kind of be in part of an experience and just hang out, it works really well. Now, to the downside, people that are not comfortable with improv, people that are not comfortable with anything that's role-playing-ish, right? The It has very few rules 
to lean on. Mm-hmm. So you end up with uh, a group of players who might potentially be super uncomfortable playing something where, okay, what do I do now? And it's like, well, whatever you want. Yep. Uh, what do I do now? Well, you can make the scene up. Oh, well, I can't, I can't do that. That's too much. Or you can have one of us make the scene up, and then you get to play it out to conclusion. It's like, well, I still have to make stuff up then, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, you kind of do. The thing that I found with Fiasco, whenever I hit that point, because uh, there was one year that I ran, I think, into the double digits of Fiasco sessions at PAX. uh, And the thing that I found with situations like that, if you, uh, there actually is a prompt in front of everybody, because through this creation, you've set up all these things. Uh, and it it can I agree with you. It can feel like you're sitting there without an idea of what to do. And some people sit there and are like, "Well, what do I do? I can do anything." That it's the uh, paralysis of choice. But once you realize that there's actually a whole bunch of things on the table that suggest things you can do, uh, that really helps people keep moving instead of sitting there boggling at the unlimited possibility of role playing games. It's just an important thing to remember about about the prompt in general is that you know, yes. We, and especially this audience, right, loves these games. Role-playing games are amazing. But there is definitely a group of people for whom it just will not click. And uh, don't force those people. They will be very unhappy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like, Fiasco, awesome. Uh, so Fiasco is your main pick. Fiasco is definitely the main pick. Um, secondary pick is Dread. Okay. Uh, 2004, Epidi Ravichal, and I believe Nathaniel Barmore is listed as a co-author, but I don't know for sure. I am actually not sure. I think I have it on the shelf if we really wanted to check. But I, I, I know I know, Epi is, is the man, uh, and yeah. he will definitely let us know if, uh, if, if somebody else needs to be listed. But so Dread, Dread is weird. Uh, Dread is the party happens to be happening on Halloween, or you happen to be having a party with a bunch of alien fans, or, you know, whatever, right? And the thing about Dread is that you can set up really, really quick. So this is a, a th- another thing about Fiasco, is that Fiasco is really good when the, all of the players are genre savvy. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I know what's going to happen next, because I've seen this movie 20,000 times, right? Dread is, okay, well, let's play the alien set. You know what's going to happen, and it's going to be bad. Well, and to explain Dread, since uh, in oh, theory yeah. we'll, we'll have people who don't know this, Dread is a game where uh, it's basically a horror movie, uh, kind of suspense horror as opposed to like body horror or something. Uh, and the really amazing thing about it is that resolution relies on a Jenga tower. So you set up your Jenga tower, and based on uh, what dangerous things you're doing, the GM may tell you that you have to pull one will, or more things. Will tell you. The GM will tell you at some point, but on any given <laughs> action, they may tell you that you have to pull uh, one or more bricks from the Jenga tower in normal Jenga-style rules. If the tower falls over, you're done. You are removed from play in a genre-appropriate way, I believe, is is the, the way that I explain it. I was very close to saying dead, but I realized in a few cases... Not that necessarily. Not necessarily. Right. Uh, and and the, the playsets that come with it in, in the original book are uh, uh, like an aliens playset where you uh, land aboard the ship and then start exploring, and it's totally awesome. Uh, and a, uh, a teen in the woods playset, which is totally awesome. And uh, I can't remember the third one. Oh, I don't remember. I think it's much more serious, uh, like like, dark horror type of thing, but I can't remember. I think that it's one of those games that actually plays the best when you take it slightly unseriously, kind of like a lot of horror movies. If you go to a horror movie, there, there are only a few horror movies that really work if you're going in uh, wanting to laugh at them, that they can still be serious even if you go in not being serious. Whereas Dread really works best with the kinds of movies that you go in and you're there for the thrills, but you're also there to kind of laugh at how crazy some of this stuff is. It's kind of like Alien. Like, I, yeah. there are a lot of moments in Alien that I actually end up laughing at uh, just for the sheer over-the-top body-bursting... Oh. And Dread has this this other property that's really important about RPGs in general, but Art Dread in particular, where the GM is the only person that really needs to know any of the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh Nobody else needs to know rules to be better at the game. That's that's one of the weird things about a lot of RPGs is that, yeah, sure, you don't technically need to know the rules to play, but you need to know the rules to play well. Mm-hmm. And in Dread, you really don't. Like, as a player, you can just do really cool stuff, 
And the GM will be like, well, that's going to need two pulls. And you go, no, no, gosh, no. Uh, and the GM will goes, well, I can't kill you because you didn't knock over the tower. So it's just, it's still interesting. And you just sit down and I hand out some questionnaires and mad stuff happens. And then the third one was Baron Munchausen. Uh. The Extraordinary, which is only, it's, it's, it's weird. RPGs are weird. I don't know if Baron counts as an RPG. Oh, I hate playing the... Right? Is it an RPG game, though? Well, we talked about it last time, right? Uh, so in, in Baron Munchausen, I guess you are playing the role of, of insane storytellers like the Baron himself. Uh, and it, so this is 1998. James Wallace uh, writing as a as Baron Munchausen kind of uh, like the, the Princess Bride's uh, style. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is hilarious. If, if, if nothing else, go read the book. But basically, you are assigned a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of currency, and you take turns telling stories that are prompted by the person to your left or to your right or something. And you just f- make up a story, like five minutes long or so, and everybody else is allowed to interrupt you and say, but, but Baron, you said that the uh, Statue of Liberty was already constructed, but I believe at this time only her toe had existed, and then you have to integrate in that into your story. Um, this is great for people that just like to talk, mm-hmm. uh, because everybody else will listen to you while you talk, because they want to try and jump in. At the end, uh, James, uh, through the Baron, tells you, okay, whoever wins gets all of the money, uses it to buy the next round of drinks, and then you play again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's beautiful and easy to explain. And, you know, I, I need to play with that buy the next round of drinks uh, version more often. Yeah, like, you, you don't play that to win. You, you, play it, you play it to play. Yeah. So I think there's a trend to all three of your games that they are games that leverage uh, existing kind of genre knowledge, which actually is a theme through a lot of my picks as well. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that if you're going to play a role-playing game with people just at an event, and it's not a, hey, everybody, come to my house and we will play D&D... Uh, it's, we happen to have some time, let's play. You better be able to explain how this thing works immediately. Um, If it takes any more than 15 minutes, you're going to lose everybody. Mm -hmm. If they're not gamers, if it takes any more than a minute or two, you're going to lose everybody. Mm -hmm. So so the faster it goes, you can. The the faster faster it works. I also had Once Upon a Time, which is just a card game Mm -hmm. on my list, which is a very similar kind of just talk for a while and try and get the cards out of your hand. And it's another one that's like, okay, the rules are A, B, C, go. Yep. Um, And and super important, right? So, I mean, a lot of these pull all of the load onto the DM, which makes it a bit harder. But that was one thing that I was really concerned because I I felt like part of the constraint here was that uh, the host, whoever is asking this question, Joe in our case, needs to be able to not just have this for a particular party that they're ready for, but have it any time they're having a few people over for dinner, they have to be ready as well. Right. And that was something I actually really struggled with with my picks, is something that you can have ready to run for any group of people. Yeah, that makes Dread really hard, because yeah. you really need to know the setting. You need to know how it's going to flow from Act 1 through Act 3. Yeah, super difficult. Well, Fiasco, I think you can actually get away with quite well, as long yeah. as you have a good stock of playbooks and right. that people are at least somewhat interested in that genre. Because uh, then, if you just know a few playbooks off the top of your head, if people have been talking about uh, Fargo, that's the most recent Coen Brothers movies I've watched, uh, they can, you, you can pull out the one that kind of resembles that the most and run with it, and everybody's already going to be there. So criteria, it not only has to be easy to explain, it also has to be short. Mm -hmm. Uh, Short is important. It also has to be pull it out and immediately play. And it has to be a good one-shot. Yep. How many games are good one-shots? So I've... I viewed a few of those constraints a little differently. So I'm going to build up to my real choice, because like you, I've got a couple of runners-up, which uh, definitely puts us in danger for future episodes that we're going to talk about every game we care about. But there's always more games. I keep on... Every week, I get a little worried that, oh no, I'm not going to have a game for this, and then realize that I've got more than I can deal with. And 50 more come out. 50 more come out. Uh, I just got my copy of Circle of Hands that I want to read. Yes! Uh, Going through that now... Very interesting. Yeah, okay. the, I still actually haven't read Clay the Wokes either, uh, despite Paul keep on asking, uh, keeps on asking me about it. It will stick in your head, man. So, uh, my first runner-up is uh, a game called "The Play Is the Thing" by Mark Diaz Truman. Yeah, uh, totally. Which is didn't even 
come to my mind. Exactly. It's hilarious how many of these things I was like, how did I not think of Dread and Fiasco? Those are so obvious. Uh, so this is 2012. Um, the idea of it is that it's a game uh, about a Shakespeare play where you're all going to be playing um, both actor, you're, you're playing actors who are in the play. And that's kind of the brilliant constraint in my uh, opinion, because a lot of games that I thought would fit for this kind of audience run into the problem that you're working together so much that your actual competition is with the other players. You all want cool things to happen, but the rules are all about whose cool thing happens, which actually means that you're not quite... Uh, you're, the game is, if anything, fighting you a little bit. Um, Universalis falls into this camp for me. Right. Every time I play it, it's about... Everybody has these cool ideas. Everybody agrees they should happen. And then we have to like go through the rules to figure out how they happen. Because it's that kind of cool stuff happens game. But there's still this checkpoint. Um, and it means that you end up competing with the other players. Because you're all trying to make cool stuff happen. As opposed to working with them to make cool stuff happen. Uh, so the brilliant thing about the play is the thing. Is that... You're fighting over how this Shakespeare play retold goes, but that's because you're these actors. So you're, uh, which kind of actor you are actually tells you how you want to manipulate the Shakespeare play to make it turn out differently. Right. Uh, so you're, there's that fun of kind of messing with your friend's version of the story and sidetracking it, all that stuff. Uh, but you're not actually fighting with your friends. You have this role that lets you do that. It's kind of like the uh, the style of D&D where inter-party conflict is an interesting thing. You know, we're all going to argue about who's going where, and we're really going to duke this out. Um, it's kind of like that, except with fewer opportunities for hurt feelings from each other. That's, oh, man. It's really easy to forget that, like, like RPGs are basically... Here's here's a background and here's a way to resolve interplayer inter conflict, <laughs> right? And, and some RPGs just kind of punt on interplayer conflict. They're, they they say, well, in in this particular situation, like combat, if the player says I hit that thing and the DM says no, you don't roll. But in all other situations, they say, well, you know, work it out like responsible adults and whatever. <laughs> and, and and I mean I mean Burning Wheel has an interpersonal conflict rules that you just punt that you drop to but it's important to remember that that you can do that for whatever like all all conflict in the rpg is about where the story is going to lead right where the narrative is. well and i don't think uh that you the idea that the game can punt on it i actually think is quite a strong thing treating the players like responsible adults who can work out disagreements is, is really strong uh especially when it's when those disagreements are less about the direction of the game. Uh, the place where I think making disagreements be interesting uh, is important is when it's a game where everybody is kind of directly pulling at how things are going to turn out. Right. Which is very much how Universalis is and very much how the plays the thing is. Uh, the thing is... <laughs> I can't even finish that sentence. How this game by how Mark is... The play, in quotes. Yeah. <laughs> the the way that they the way that this works is so brilliant because you can argue over these things without having to argue with your friends you're arguing through these kind of characters right uh, and like your suggestions it does really well because you can leverage hopefully a knowledge of Shakespeare uh, that's definitely rarer I'd say than knowledge of kind of things go bad movies or horror movies but still common enough that you can probably say okay we're gonna redo Hamlet and nobody's gonna remember the details but they kind of get the general gist. And that's all you need, because the wonderful thing is uh, he has a few plays in here that he basically gives you summaries of and how they work in the game, and then you, uh, the whole point is that your actor is trying to maybe get more time on stage, or make it uh, more dramatic, or make it funnier, or any of these things. So you don't actually have to know the play, you just have to know enough to do it wrong. Right, and then it doesn't really matter if, if you don't know the play very much at all, because... Because that's not what the game is about, right? Yep. The game is about how it comes out. Oh, man. The idea of splitting... Like, as soon as you can abstract something, and, and Paul found this in Clay That Woke too, is <laughs> that if you can abstract something so that you're talking about something slightly different or from a slightly different perspective, yep. that kind of removes personal feelings from the matter. So, I mean, if my actor's arguing with your actor, hopefully that can remove a bit of the... Well, I'm yelling at you because you're a terrible person. Well, and feeling, it's so good right? because our goal is to have these ridiculous bickering actors who are all staging the worst production ever 
basically. Mm -hmm. uh, so the fact that our characters are arguing is not a failure state for the game, um, which helps with a thing that sometimes comes up with new role-playing folks where they're like, uh, oh, so what do we do now? Right. I think this has actually been a common theme of all of our games. They're games where it's really clear to say, this is what you're going to do, as opposed to starting a bunch of people off in a tavern. Um, There's actually some research on that, um, about how if you, if you know where the story is going, it is more satisfying really? than if you don't. Uh, psychological studies. So they had people, uh, they would tell them what happened at the end of the story, I believe, and then read through the story and ask people how they felt about how the story went. Mm -hmm. And then they would tell people what, you know, something that didn't happen, and they would tell people nothing about the story but something random. And, and the people that knew where the story was going in the general sense had the best time reading this interesting because you're uh, it's kind of like the second time you read a book and you right. pick up on all the things that maybe aren't even deliberate foreshadowing but you you can think that way now that you know where it's going right or a bit of suspense about well i know it's going to go here but not exactly how mm -hmm. right and that's why flashback comes in so much it's like oh yeah i know that this person survives to the end because they're telling the story in past tense yep but who else makes it? And, you know, what are the details? Well, and I think the equivalent for role-playing games is more in genre awareness than it is in exact endings. Yeah, totally. Because so much of role-playing games is the unpredictable, playing to find out what happens. Uh, even if you use a different term for it, for many people, that's a key thing that you're looking forward to, is this, we don't know where the game's going to go. Uh, but knowing kind of the genre that the game's going to stay in allows you to appreciate where that's going and have some expectations. Right. Uh, if, if you sat your friends down to play Fiasco, but you told them that it was going to be uh, like a wacky adventure, it's going to skate the line there. It's going to maybe have the wacky part, but less the adventure. Right. Um, so my next game uh, is Primetime Adventures. Nice. Uh, and the PDF for the Kickstarter just got released, which makes me so happy. So this is Matt Wilson. Uh, the original printing is... Uh, oh man, Ancient. Pretty ancient. So the copy that I have is 2006, uh, and he is releasing a new one currently. Um, the PDF just came out. So Primetime Adventures is uh, a game of playing a TV show, basically. Um, the I actually am going to admit up front, it's not my favorite thing to play. Uh, <laughs> but I'm willing to recommend it for other people, because I think for other... for uh, certain other people, and for actually a lot of other people, it fits really well. Um, and the thing that it does really well is give you the tools to uh, kind of script a TV show. Uh, you're kind of, I mean, you are playing it. You're doing a lot of the typical role-playing game things. You're in character. You may come up to a challenge and not know if you're going to succeed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but kind of the meta-knowledge that what we're doing is making a TV show, and we have all these genre things, and we do a brainstorming session up front to establish the show and uh, the characters, and there's this concept that characters can be more popular. In fact, really, that's the most important thing, is what you can do with your character that gets them fan mail from other people. Um, and you rotate who's got the camera on them, and mm -hmm. it makes you think a lot more about, about cinematography and about, well, where is this scene going, and, and we can just have an intro that's very interesting. And a lot of people understand the rules of TV, I think is a useful thing. Even when, if they don't think about it, they probably watched enough TV that if you start talking about it, they'll start thinking about... I mean, this is my experience, basically. I have some friends who love to pick apart TV shows, and since then, I always watch TV shows with, like, this eye on, oh, that's how they're doing it, even if I don't really want to. Uh, <laughs> and that's what Primetime Adventures does. Uh, and that, that knowledge of how to present a game using the techniques of uh, a TV show is a really easy way to help new people feel comfortable because you can say, okay, so uh, we open on uh, our hero who is a um, librarian and uh, she's delving into this ancient tomb, uh, but she's not there to steal something. She's actually returning the ancient artifact and with her is her assistant who is actually a double agent and all this stuff. And we can open on that and establish that because we know how that looks on TV. Yeah, but so... Primetime Adventures, though, you're running a full season. I feel like I at know. a party you'd really only be able to do the pilot, right? That's all you can do, but I think that uh, 
The, that's still that's still interesting. It's interesting, and it may lead to another dinner party. I, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So wasn't that great? Come back to my house. And we'll exactly. So, and I think that's a useful thing to introduce as well. I mean, I think that one-shot games uh, definitely are a little easier sell for new players. But so much of the role-playing game hobby is people playing longer games. Um, it's at least traditionally a big part of the game and it helps them if you're introducing somebody new to the hobby it's another thing that they will understand when they start talking to other random people whereas if their only experience is rpgs that happen all in one night uh the first time that they meet other people online and i've been playing the same game for 10 years and they're gonna be really confused right um the strongest argument that i can make for primetime adventures is uh the fact that you can sit down with your friends and they could all be, say, Firefly fans, and you say, okay, let's make the second season of Firefly. (laughs) (laughs) Or the, uh, what is it, the ninth season of The Next Generation, uh, the ninth season of Buffy, eighth, something like that. Anyway, the next season of a beloved show that you, since they're your friends, probably already know they're interested in. Right. Um, Oh, man. Or you can do the, let's make Lost season two plus that doesn't suck or uh, the Battlestar Galactica that actually ends well and people already talk about you know if you sit down with your friends and say man the ending of Lost sucked they're going to start saying things about like well yeah I always kind of wished that and saying okay well hey let's let's kind of figure out how that would look let's use this to guide what we're doing so that we keep moving forward so so how long is a session of prime time it Depend. I mean, it's on the order of a few hours, so already it... But a few hours of just talking, like, uh, maybe I'm weird, but after dinner, we're already doing a few hours of talking. So it's not so... It, that's not so bad. It's like, not so bad. A few hours of gaming, like board gaming, strategy gaming, is very different from a few hours of shooting about a TV show. Yep. Like, so, I mean, that's workable. Um, I, I, if, but a few, like, three, or a few, like... Five. Um, I, I, in my experience, I can kind of run the gamut. Uh, okay. So part of the challenge here is that m- a lot of my experiences with Primetime Adventures are either with my normal gaming group, and we do um, kind of longer ev- evenings of gaming, but we often kind of shift in and out of game, game mode, mode yeah. a fair amount. Or it's a convention session, in which case it's pretty condensed and on the ball. And since those are my frames of reference, I'm horrible at telling you how many hours of like gameplay are in there. Uh, and we're also, my normal group, we tend to jam so much in. We, we I told other people about what happened in our Monster Hearts game, and they're like, oh man, so you've been playing for like a year. And I was like, oh no, that was a month. That was four <laughs> sessions. Uh, because we just, we keep moving. We keep moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, that's my pitch for Primetime Adventures. Um, the My personal kind of ambiguity about it is that I'm uh, it feels more like scripting a season of TV than I personally like but I think it's a really easy sell to a lot of people so I'd recommend it for a dinner party okay we've talked about second and third choices for a long time so I want to get to the big one yes Uh, and this one is going to fly in the face of everything we've said so far (laughs) Um, I'm going to say Moldvay Basic D&D for very different reasons than everything we've suggested so far, I think that it is wonderful. I, I don't know about very different reasons. Okay, okay, let's talk so, about the things you've suggested so far. Has to be one-shottable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Has to be mainly DM prep, very little player prep. Totally. Hand people sheets, go. Has to be genre-savvy players. Yeah, absolutely, right? Just, we're going to play Lord of the Rings for a while, or, or something a little bit, you know, more more sort Well, and sorcery. most people, uh, even if they're in the board gaming element of this is kind of a hint, like, they, they probably already have, like, hit points and classes and stuff, or probably somewhere in their consciousness already, some of the tropes. I don't think this is as far off as you think it is. I, okay, I mean, I feel like this is, uh, the, the things that we've talked about so far have been, for the most part, very collaborative, or if they're, uh, in the case of the place of the thing, they're bickering, but they're collaboratively bickering. Definitely different, yeah. Um, so... I guess since we usually explain the game a little bit, I should probably give it the same treatment. I don't I know think very many people know as much about Moldvay Basic as you think they do. Okay. Uh, well, and I know uh, we have I have 
we have coworkers <laughs> who listen to this who come up to me in the hall and they're like, I don't play role playing games, but your podcast was pretty good. So uh, this is for you guys. Uh, so, Mold Bay Basic D&D is um, one of the older editions of D&D. One of the older, as in 70-what? 80-what? Uh, I believe that it is early 80s. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, unfortunately, I only have that one in PDF. I have never splurged for a physical copy. But it, but it is... It is at least 30 years old. Yes. Uh, this is, if you uh, are a little, well, a fair bit older than me, and you maybe played D&D once or twice growing up at some friend's house, this could be the version you played. Okay. Um, if you're my age, then it was probably a different version. <laughs> uh, so the the cool things about it um, is it's very simple. Uh, there, if... Your friend's already familiar with board games where maybe you're moving a figure around a map and rolling to attack something and rolling to find out. Like, if they've played uh, a lot of the Fantasy Flight Cthulhu games, they actually have a pretty decent idea of where this is going. Like, you're going to be in a room that's collapsing and somebody's going to tell you to roll this thing to find out if you make it out. Um, and your choices are going to matter as well. It's not just a experience game where somebody's going to say you're in a collapsing room, roll this. They're going to say you're in a collapsing room, what do you do? And if you say something that maybe might succeed, they're going to tell you to roll dice. Um, it has really clear fantasy tropes, uh, which has always been one of D&D's greatest strengths that if you have read a few fantasy novels, uh, you can look at it and say, oh, okay, an elf, uh, cool, I... You may have a few different ideas of elf, but they probably have an element of in there. Like, oh, I've got some magic and a cool sword and pointy ears. Uh, sounds good. Um, the other big selling point that I see is, uh, especially by the rules as written, because I actually think it's one of the better written uh, versions of D&D, or really games around, uh, you start with a clear adventure. Uh, the book, if you just go by the book, uh, which is a wonderful way to start, there are other ways to do it, but the book says, basically the adventure starts with everybody at the door of the dungeon. Uh, and so you tell your, you hand your friends character sheets. Um, the one way I'd deviate from the game as written is that I would pre-make all the characters. You don't have to... Well, especially for this particular scenario. Yeah, right? for this scenario. And, and and the character sheets are not complex. They're not complex. They're, they're, they're I believe they're just stats, HP... Uh, a couple pieces of equipment. Like, there's no skills for people that are used to modern D&D. &D. Uh, there's... Yeah, Is thieves, there's... Well, the, the, yeah, the thief stuff... The thief stuff is, is be thiefy in three different ways or something, right? Basically, yeah. So they're, they're uh, based on your class, there'll be a few other things. Right. Um, very, very small, though. Very small things, and the... One of the key things compared to certain other editions of D&D &D is that you can just hand these things to the players and tell them... Just look over it. Things you understand probably mean what you think. Things you don't understand, don't worry about. We'll deal with them when they come up. Uh, and then you tell them, okay, you're all at the entrance to the dungeon, and you, since you're ready for all these dinner parties, you've cooked up some wonderful dungeon or used one of the great published ones, because this is... Or you pull out Tomb of Horrors and adapt it. Tomb of Horrors. I mean, the, <laughs> one of the wonderful things about Moldvay is that it was from... One of the heydays of adventures. I guess there have been multiple heydays of adventure publishing. But uh, there are a lot of great things from either Moldvay or the subsequent sets that do higher levels that maybe you try and scale down. We at one point did uh, Horror on the Hill with Moldvay. And yeah. Um, and <laughs> actually that experience brings up another wonderful part of it. You can do it with a big table of people because right. it's uh, designed to be really simple. And uh, they're by the book are procedures for dealing with the fact that you've got a lot of people. Uh, so running, say, the plays the thing with a table of 12 people wouldn't work because there's all these <laughs> people all trying to yeah, right now, yeah. pull things in a different direction. And whoever's uh, facilitating the game has to deal with all these people saying things. Whereas uh, Moldvay has this wonderful concept of a caller where basically there's the DM who describes the entire world. There's the caller who is the interface between the DM and all the other players, basically. Um, and using the caller well requires a, a bit of learning on the GM side, but basically it's for taking all these big party decisions and boiling them down into one thing that the GM can then say, okay, you go that way. Um, so I think that the, uh, and the other selling point is for people who are used to board games, Moldvay is really good about uh, building on those kind of board game roots in such a way that uh, 
they're likely to understand that some of what they're dealing with is the strictures put on them by the rules, which are kind of reflecting reality. Like you can only do so much in any given time unit and time units uh, eat up your resources, like your torches burning down and stuff, and mean more chances that some random monster wanders across you because they're moving as well. Um, and these things for a board gamer, you start to see that this is also kind of an exploration puzzle. Uh, and the cool thing that I think a lot of people latch onto when they're a board gamer and play for the first time is that it's that cool exploration puzzle, but you have the entire palette of anything you can imagine to deal with that puzzle. Yeah, this as opposed is... to only the interactions on the, the cards or whatever. This is the thing that really grabbed me when I first read D&D. And I mean, I got really late to the party, saved up and bought like 3-5. Uh, when when it had been out for a while. Wow, I actually beat you to oh man, yeah. Games. I, I did. I had very small amounts of money, <laughs> uh, and and I got it from Wizards of the Coast while they still had stores. So oh wow, yeah, yeah. This this is this is weird timing. But so the thing that really made me interested in the game was oh I can build this crazy thing and put whatever I want there and and just have my brother explore right mm-hmm. and and. That's just so crazy. And the idea that you could really meet anything, thats this is one of my favorite parts about playing with people that are not used to role-playing games. Yep. Right? The, the, talking about genre savvy, if you've played a ton of D&D, especially if you've played a ton of like 4.0 or, or 3.5, you're like, well, uh, the DM's going to do this, and this trap is going to be this dangerous, mm-hmm. and oh, I saw this monster, I know what that's going to be, and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, we should all hit him, you should flank him, I, I can play this tactical game, right? Yep. But a new player, new players do the coolest stuff, because they don't have the restrictions that we feel like, you know, should be applied. Like, you know, as, as me, it's hard for me to remember that I can do things like, oh yeah, I'm going to jump up on the wall and then drop on that guy. Whereas somebody else is like, well, you know, that would be cool. Or I, I just watched some Kung Fu movies or whatever. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's the best part about these. Or they have these wonderful tactical ideas of, oh, well, we've got this many people and there's the high ground here. Will that give us an advantage? Like, mm, yeah, sure. That seems like something that would give you an advantage. Um, and I think that... So one of the other selling points here and why I... Uh, recommend this for a dinner party is that there's an element of nostalgia for people um, that even if they haven't played D&D giving them something that is one of the uh, widest distributed versions of D&D kind of buys them into this history of D&D because like the the current version of D&D is pretty good my opinion is generally that it's kind of everybody's second favorite Uh, and it's totally workable. It has some wonderful things about it. Um, but giving them, especially if they're not already familiar with it, giving them something historical, there's uh, a sense of, you can't really call it nostalgia because they haven't played before, but it's kind of uh, this appreciation that this is a bit of history. Sure. Yeah, it's, it, and the other, so one of the things about playing five with somebody is, it's like, it's like if I brought a game to your house and I said, oh, this came out last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've played it a couple times. Let's give it a shot. That's very different from this came out 30 years ago. I've played it hundreds of times mm-hmm. with many different people. And so is lots of other people. Let's give it a shot, right? And there's something fun, especially if you've got some of the wonderful old modules and stuff, of showing them the awesomely period art. I was gonna. I was looking for... What to put after awesomely there? Period. Period art is 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 interesting. Well, and I think that there's there's something fun about uh, when you show that to people. When you show them a modern book, they're going to be comparing it to all kinds of other modern presentations. And even when you show them modern books that attempt to do that kind of retro thing, it's like, oh well, they're trying to be retro, uh, or you're trying to find this niche for modern fantasy, which is kind of a weird niche at this point yeah. uh you you can't really present D the same way that you would present uh like a really cool indie video game that does all kinds of very modern image have like big splash images a little bit of kind of swiss typography uh 
it doesn't quite work when you have this long fantasy history, but just going for the obvious thing, it works so well. And uh, I've actually seen a lot of people, you show them these old modules and they get excited. Like they're, they're wonderful for what they are. Yeah, it's really crazy. Uh, so that is my recommendation. You, you have some friends and uh, since they're board gamers, I, I would almost, I mean, they're, once you say it's D and D, they're going to know, uh, but I would present it to them very like you don't start asking them about their character and what they care about and what they believe and how they relate to each other you present them with a challenge and see how they can deal with that challenge and from there uh role play kind of tends to develop yeah i i, I think mold they can count mold they will fit very well in the uh in the group of games there's one there's one interesting thing you said uh, like 15 minutes ago uh you said mold they said start you outside of the dungeon mm-hmm at the, at the door to the dungeon, I believe, is the... Why not start at the deepest pit of the dungeon trying to escape? Um, because the escaping matters so much on your choices so far. Uh, the part of the art of dungeon delving is giving yourself an escape route. Um, and in particular, in Moldvay, uh, it's knowing your escape route because mapping is a big thing. Right, but the, so the thing about the thing about having a place to go, right? Mm -hmm. Putting somebody at the front of a dungeon, there are lots of places to go. I know groups that would say, okay, that's cool. We're going to go somewhere else mm -hmm. because why not? You know, I'm not interested in going into a dungeon. Yep. Why would I go into a dungeon? Well, and this is... This is how you present the game, I think. Sure. Uh, you, you don't tell people... This is the objective. Yeah, you say, you've come to this dungeon to retrieve for whatever reason. I mean, kind of the most obvious one, especially for people who are maybe familiar with board games, is to retrieve the trinket. Like, you're here for the thing, uh, and there's no asking why. Uh, because we've agreed to play a game, um, and this is a problem with a lot of modern D&D uh, &D adventures. Um as far as, sorry, like, official D&D. There are lots of other adventure publishers who know this much better. Uh, but the first stage of a lot of published adventures is, do you want to go on an adventure? Right. Which is just so... Like, no, 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 no. And then, but I mean, you know, full-on uh, kind of, oh gosh, what's the name of the thing? Uh, Hero of a Thousand Faces style. Like, yeah, sure, there's the call to adventure at the beginning of the of the cycle, and then there's the refusal of the call, and then there's basically the force. Yeah, but we're not playing. It's like, um... no, 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 skip all that stuff. Like, get yeah. to the interesting thing. We don't have very much time. And I think that this is one of the strengths of Moldvay, as opposed to some of the other games that we've discussed, depending on who you're playing with, mm -hmm. is that they don't have to think a lot about making good story, basically. Uh, it's... They have to think about surviving, which is probably harder than making a good story. But people, uh, when presented with the hypothetical, like you're in a room filling with water and you're weighed down with uh, armor, what do you do? That's a lot more pointed than, okay, uh, what would you do in the next season of Firefly? Um, which I, I think it matters who you're playing with. Um, I think that the hardest thing here is that we're recommending for any possible group, any right? possible group of parties. Like you could, you could throw some pretty weird parties that I think none of these would work at. Um, but mostly to go against the grain, I think Mulvey is my top pick. Uh, and I love doing this kind, uh, this kind of party game of Moldvay, partially because uh, it works so well with so many people and with drinks and snacks and people getting up to go to the bathroom and stuff. It's not like all, a lot of these other games, if one person says, oh, I've got, oh, sorry, I've got to leave early, uh, you kind of are in an odd place. Whereas Moldvay, it's like, oh, hand your character to the next person. Bye. See you next time. Um, so, Moldvay, great I, parties. I think that... For a group of board gamers, Moldvay is probably going to beat out Fiasco. Uh, I think for a group of... Uh, if the board games are less strategy and more uh, like wits and wagers mm, or, yeah. you know, uh, party games or uh, maybe even, uh, gosh, uh, One Night Werewolf, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. then Fiasco is going to win out almost immediately. Yep. But I mean, again, that goes back to what kind of genre are these people genre savvy about, right? Yep. Well, and the thing that I kept on thinking when approaching this is that um, it would be really cool. I, I, want, I wanted to find a way to suggest a game that 
gracefully upgrades from board game to role-playing game. And, like, if you play One Night Ultimate Werewolf and there's a bit more of a LARP feeling to it. Oh, and LARPs are uh, another thing that I considered bringing up but aren't really my thing. I didn't feel qualified to talk about. Yeah, the, the problem... The problem with LARPs is they've got such a reputation, Yes. even with people that know nothing else about them, right? Just the word itself has a whole bunch of baggage attached to it, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it, which is really sad, actually, because it's... Well, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of play of other games or, uh, sorry, other games as far as like certain board games starts to verge onto LARP. Right. Um, and... People aren't weirded out by that. But when you tell them, oh, no, we're just going to sit down and do the thing that a minute ago you were doing about your character in the board game, but we're not going to have the board, it feels so different. Um, and part of that is why uh, the style of role-playing, where people are excited that they spend an entire night without rolling the dice, is uh, so for so many people kind of a mark of honor. Because I feel like what those people are looking for is kind of a LARP type experience, but they, for whatever reason, don't want to do that. So having kind of this permission to start playing like that, having a sheet in front of you that you didn't use all night is uh, a huge tool to that. And I think that that's a hurdle that LARP's going to have for this party group. This might be an introvert-extrovert split. Oh, I wonder. Because right? one of the reasons that I like pulling out board games is that I am relatively introverted. Mm -hmm. And I like having some structure to the night where... Okay, if I'm really tired of dealing with people, I can deal with the game. Yep. And I will deal with people through the game. So I know that there's a bunch of structure, and I can just basically ignore you because anything relevant you're doing is going to be re related to the board game, and, and stuff is going to happen, and I don't have to feel like a horrible host. So all of your friends stuff who play board games with you who are listening to this are going to be like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 come over and play Virgin Queen so I can ignore you as much as possible. <laughs> you right? know, I actually thought about Virgin Queen as one of those games that if it, uh, oh, man, if yeah. there's an element of parlor LARP to it, there, that could be really interesting. And so I guess we should fill in just a tiny <laughs> bit of what that is. Virgin Queen is an amazing board game. Um, oh, that's a terrible thing to say. So, so Virgin Queen is a 6 to 12 hour war game about the period immediately following the Reformation. I was going to fill in some detail. <laughs> you have to start there, though. Okay. You have to start there. So Shut Up and Sit Down tried to do... Tried to do a review of I believe here I stand, mm -hmm. um, which is the first game in this in this two game so far series, and they could not get through it. Huh. This is yeah, you should you should find the video if you can. I, I love the shut up and sit down guys; they're really cool. Um, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, the game days where I do these kind of games, I send out the PDF rules. I give everybody factions and tell them to read the rules for those factions. And then I yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, well it becomes this kind of thing where I would never play this at a party without oh, no. massive prep. So so so, so ramping that, from Virgin Queen to something though. Uh yeah. So, so, so it's dangerous saying it is definitely an excellent game. Uh, it is definitely an excellent game. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean that uh, it's a party game that then you just kind of start <laughs> LARPing during. But uh, they're, like a lot of these historical games, they're, uh, when you're playing one of these factions, people tend to turn on just this tiny bit. I mean, we've seen this a lot with the um, coin games. Right. Uh, and with the coin games, it's interesting because it actually... Counterinsurgency games from GMT, also from GMT. Yes. Uh, so with um, like Cuba Libre, I've actually learned a fair amount of history and uh, empathized with these groups and understood uh, the other sides to these stories um, because uh, I've had friends come up to me and say, how can you like this game? It's about horrible counterinsurgency uh, operations and I'm like yes it is and it's uh, taught me about that in a systematic way not just in what actually happened but in a, why these things go so badly um, that's kind of part of play I think the biggest difference between so if you wanted to move from one of these to some kind of a LARP mm -hmm. I think the biggest difference is that board games are built to have a victor yes uh, and and you have an objective and that objective is to win 
and and that is going like I, how do I win this game? Mm -hmm. You know, what do I do to win? Am I on a team with people, or or are we all playing so that we can win together against the game? Whereas role playing games and and I don't know, but I think a lot of LARPs are much more okay. What's going to happen, mm -hmm. and and where are we going to go? And the objective is to find out what happens and find out where you go. Like you know, you know. Read Vincent Baker's recent uh, ra crazy race to jump to the ISSS, ISS post. Um, but, but, I mean, that's, that's the hard part about that transition, right? Is that, is that you're taking a group of people who's like, okay, so I want to win this game. Mm -hmm. How do I win this game? And saying, okay, we're just going to hang out for a while. You can't win this game. Or, alternatively, you are always winning this game as long as you are having fun, which, you know. So... Breaking slightly from our uh, suggestion, generally we're trying to suggest actual published games uh, for a broad <laughs> definition of published. Right. But uh, I'm going to end my suggestions with a sneaky idea of uh, taking something like uh, one of the Fantasy Fight Flight Cthulhu games or Legion of Honor, uh, which is a French legionnaire Grognard game just came out. Uh, just came out, um, but the Legion of Honor is very much an experience game. You just kind of have things happen to your character, and maybe you have the skills to get through them. But uh, and then the Fantasy Flight Cthulhu games, you're trying to stop some evil thing from rising, and you're going on little adventures that are on cards generally to do that. Um, both of those, I wonder if you could start the RPG, some of the fun of RPGs, not all of it, by. Uh, replacing some of the roles on cards in those games with you, who is facilitating the game, GM a scene basically, uh, and especially if it's people who are really new to games, you just tell like you don't tell them that you're hacking this on the fly. You just flip over a card in Legion of Honor and tell them, okay, this means that uh, so you're in the uh, barracks with your commander who is accusing you of having stolen, uh, and you actually play that out like a scene, and you get a little bit of role playing in there. I I wonder about that actually. You could do it. It w it would take all week to play, <laughs> but you could totally. Oh, man. I mean, for Legion of Honor, I think it would be certain. Like for all of these, it would be certain certain events are like open ended events that you then you do a little bit of RPG play. Okay, this well, this will be another question sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah, um. I didn't actually plan to cover that one, but it sounded like a wonderful <laughs> idea when I thought of it. Uh, so. Our two top recommendations, yes. Fiasco and Moldvay. I am going to stick with arguing that uh, Moldvay may be a better choice, especially because I think for a dinner party, you may have more people than you want to play Fiasco with. For a dinner party with a with a board game crowd, especially. I with can... A, I can, a dinner Moldvay party, assuming that this isn't just like you, your significant other, and another couple. <laughs> uh, assuming this is like party means six to ten people. Right. Uh, and with a caveat that Joe told us they were board gamers, I'm going to say Moldvay. Sounds good to me. Okay, well, that was our question for this week. Uh, and as with Joe's question, we're always open to your suggestions of questions you'd like us to answer. Pass them to us on G+, or on Facebook, or on Twitter at AQ uh, Podcast. AQ Podcast on uh, Twitter, and if you search on any of the other sites, you should find us. Yes. Uh, and since last time, we have become available on iTunes and Stitcher. So if you are uh, listening to us through one of those sites, please subscribe and maybe leave us a rating. That'd be nice. That would be crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, even if it's one star, it would be pretty cool to know <laughs> that somebody listened to this and was like, this is horrible. <laughs> somebody listened. now means that one of my friends is going to put, I listen to this and it's horrible with yeah. one star. You know it's true. Uh, okay. Oh, well. well, cool. Thanks a lot. Bye.